The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Um, I'm, my, my name is Randy, by the way. Um, we are in week 12 of our series on Nehemiah that we're calling A Great Work. Uh, so we have one more week left, and we'll be wrapping it up. And so far, it's my favorite Old Testament series that we have done, uh, by far. I mean, it's, thank you. It's also the only Old Testament series that we've done. And, uh, but I think it's been all right so far. Um, so if you haven't been around, we've been going with our, our boy, Nehemiah, who was the sommelier or the wine taster to the king. Uh, he was the, the most powerful king of the time, the king of Persia. And they, I mean, they, were, they were America and Russia put together. They just ran the world at the time. And so Nehemiah was this kind of leftover Jew who had somehow, we don't know how, moved up in the rank. And if, I mean, if, if you're in a monarchy, an absolute monarchy, to be a servant to the king isn't like, like we might think of a servant as lowly. It is a very powerful position. And if you're a servant to the king, particularly one like Nehemiah, who was actually in the presence of the king every single day, because that's not something... Even even his advisors would get. They would be summoned whenever he wanted them. And uh, you hope that it was like he was something he was happy about uh, and not that he was discouraged. But, but Nehemiah got to be with him every day. And he got to see him in a good mood because you're, you're feeding the guy wine, right? So, I mean, that's a pretty good position to be in. If you know his taste and if he can trust you because your number one job besides your number two job, would be pick out a good vintage. Number one job would be make sure I don't get killed. There's a lot of pressure on his job. He tested the wine every night, every time he's going to serve the king. And if he didn't die, then the king would drink the wine because they could know that it wasn't poison. So, pretty sweet gig. He gets to drink wine and serve the king, lives in the palace. Everything's going well with him. And then one day, some of his boys come back from a trip, a jaunt. We don't know why. You know, Maybe it was a, a really a poor man's spring break. And they had gone down to Jerusalem, down in Judah. And every, you know, he's hanging out with them afterwards and says, hey, how's it going? You know, how, how, the tri- how was the trip? And they said, man, it is terrible down there. You would not believe the gates have been destroyed by fire and the walls are all destroyed. The city lies in ruins and they are, they are a laughing stock of the region. Uh, and it was kind of interesting what happens here at this point because Nehemiah, as far as we know, probably never had seen the city of Jerusalem, ever. And he had, he had not, never seen the city of Jerusalem in its glory. In its heyday, in the day of David and Solomon, Jerusalem was one of the wonders of the world. It was a beautiful walled city. It was protected. It was, uh, it was amazing. And it held in it the crown jewel of the Jewish civilization, the temple. And the temple was amazing. Like, you guys ever seen, like, this is, I'm dating myself on this. You guys ever seen MTV Cribs? Like, they go and they do tours of this. And you're like, wow, they have gold-plated walk-in closets. Like, that's, why would you have that? But that's awesome. You know, they have subwoofers in their pool. That's amazing. How do they do that? Like, you, you see, like, how awesome the digs were. Well, the digs in Jerusalem, Jerusalem in the temple, which is where, by the way, the presence of God himself dwelt among his people was amazing. 
They said that whenever the sun was shining on it, it would, it would, you, you, you had trouble looking at it because it was gleaming in the sun because of the gold and the silver and all the stuff that was encased around it. It was huge. It was, it was, it was humongous. You had this out, outer court. It was just amazing. They said the, the stones, some of them were like 12 tons. How did they move 12 ton stones to make the wall? I have no idea. It's like a retaining wall for the, for the temple. I have no idea, but it was an amazing thing to behold. Nehemiah had never seen that. And so what happened next makes it even all the more kind of interesting that he heard that the walls were torn down, the gates were destroyed by fire, and it says that it broke his heart. He began to weep. Because when God puts a burden on your heart for something, it doesn't matter whether you, it just doesn't matter. It just breaks your heart. And it broke his heart. It says he had trouble eating and sleeping. And days and weeks pass. And we, we don't know what he's doing except he's fasting and praying. But we also find out later on that he was planning. Because the moment came whenever he was serving the king of particularly good vintage. It was on a feast day. And he's pouring the wine. But this day he had a frown on his face. And you didn't do that in the presence of the king on penalty of death. That's, that's having a really bad day. You, you're like, you're, you're, your cat got run over by a chariot. And, you're, and some people would rejoice at that, but other people would be bummed out by that. And he, he comes in and he's looking sad. You better not look sad your cat got run over. But he, today, he looks sad in the presence of the king. And the king says, why are you sad? And he says, why shouldn't I be sad when the, my homeland, my, the city of my father's lies in ruins? And the king says, what do you want to do? And at this point, some of us would be like, oh, junk. It's like the dog that finally caught the car. Like, what are you going to do with it? Like, you have no plans. Like, what you are going to do? You're just chasing it and finally he caught it. But Nehemiah had been planning as well as praying and fasting. Whenever the king said, what do you want me to do for you? He said, here's what I need. And he had a list. I need you to do this and this and this and this. And Nehemiah leaves his plush Pause position in the presence of the most powerful man on the face of the earth and goes to this hobunk, torn down remnant of a city called Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he tours the city and it's even worse than he had imagined. The walls are destroyed. They've been burned by fire at the gates and he tours the city. And not only is the, the wall in ruins, but the, the city is like a ghost town. It says in chapter 7 that even though the city was still large, there were few people there. It's like Detroit. You get there and it's just like, it's just empty, man. It's just a remnant of what it once was. But he comes out and he gathers the people that were there. And he says, here's the deal. God's hand has been upon me and he has called me to come build this wall. And that's what we're going to do. And so God, something amazing then happens that people actually do it. Sometimes leading people is like herding cats, particularly in church world. If you've ever been a leader in any position, you try to get Christians to do anything. It's like leading, it's like leading a bunch of cats. You're just kind of, all right, here's what we're going to do. Then everybody scatters and goes their own direction. But this day, he stands up and he says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to build the wall. Everybody says yes. And 52 days later, the wall is built. It's an amazing thing. But then Nehemiah didn't just stop him building the wall. Because he wasn't just looking to rebuild a wall. He was looking to rebuild God's people. 
And after they get the wall built, they gather everybody together. And Israel's been out just doing their thing. Like, you know, Israel has a pretty cool history. I mean, if you're a country that began by God, like, bringing you out of another country, and there's, like, plagues going on, there's, like, fire falling from heaven, and toads, and bugs, and night, and people dying, and he leaves you out. And then you think you're, like, stuck in front of this giant body of water, and he opens up the water, and you walk through, and you get on the other side. And then there's, like, lightning and flashing on top of a mountain, and a guy comes down, and his face is glowing, and he's holding these tablets, which he says, like, God carved these tablets by his very fingers on this rock. Like, that's a pretty cool beginning, right? And then, like, through the wilderness, it says that the people of Israel were led by fire, a ball, a pillar of fire by night, and a pillar of cloud by day that showed them where they were supposed to go. That was a pretty cool history. But Israel forgot like that. As soon as they got to the place, the promised land that God had called them, they start to run out and do their own thing. And he calls them back, and then they run out and do their own thing. And then he calls them back, and they run out and do their own thing. And this happens over and over again. And finally, he says, look, this is the covenant. This is the agreement that I made with you. If you don't listen to me, then I'm going to let you go, and I'm going to scatter you across the face of the earth. And that's how, they had, that's how Israel had been left. That's how Judah had been left. That's how the city of Jerusalem had been left in shambles. The people had turned away from God. They had forgotten. Do you ever forget? Do you ever forget what God's done for you? Like, like sometimes I tell my son, Landon, he's, he's three years old. Bless his heart. And I will say, do not jump on the furniture. Do you hear me? Yes. What did I just say? Do not jump on the furniture. Okay. And I will let him go, and he will immediately get on the furniture and jump on the furniture. He forgets that quickly. But how many of us do the same thing with God? God has saved you. God has brought you out of a, the darkness. God has, God has revolutionized your life. He's changed your eternal destiny from a really bad destiny to forever with him. And how many of us just forget every single day? People had forgotten over and over again, and that's how they had gotten scattered. And God called them back. And for the first time since the times of David and Solomon, when the city was in its zenith, they open up the book and they read God's words to the people. And it breaks the people's hearts. And they make a covenant. They make an agreement. It's what Jonathan talked about last week. They make a covenant before God with each other. said, we will obey your word. We will obey your law. Nehemiah wasn't just looking to rebuild a wall. He was looking to rebuild a people. And then today, in the eye of chapters 11 and 12, which you might, if you've read ahead, like you might wonder like, wow, what is, what are we going to talk about in chapters 11 and 12? Because there's a lot of names and I'm interested in hearing how he's going to pronounce, but there's not a whole lot else in there. But there are some really cool gems. If you have your Bible, you can open to the book of Nehemiah. I'm only going to have one verse on the the, uh, screen this morning. Um, Part of that, part of the reason that that is that beginning in August, we're not going to, we're not, excuse me, we're not going to show any verses on the screen. Uh, we're going to show references, and the idea is that we want to look in the Scripture ourselves. So you're able to open the Bible or open your app and actually look at the words for yourself at what God is saying. It's good practice for us. Some of us may never open the book again during the week, but this will be the chance that we can together. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll have Bibles ready for you on those days. But if you have your Bible, you can open your, your, your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 11. 
verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the, whole, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. So, it, like we said, it's like a city like Detroit. It's a remnant of what it once was, but it needs people to live there. And so the way they decide to do it, the leaders are already living there, and they say, we need some people to live here. The people that were living in the area, they were living excuse me, in farms outside the city, surrounding the city. Part of that was because the wall, before the wall was built, that was a safer place to be because you didn't want to be congregated together with a lot of other people without protection of the wall so marauders could come in during the middle of the night. You were safer in your own little house where you were kind of scattered. But then also because that's the way the economy ran is by agriculture. And so they were out in their, in their homes growing crops and having livestock and doing you know, all the stuff that farmers do in order to keep the economy running in the agricultural, agrarian society. But they needed people to be in the city. And so what they said, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to cast lots. We're going to roll a dice. We're going to pick a, pick a straw. You ever do that with your siblings? Like you had a shorter straw and you pick a straw and figure out who has to clean the bathroom because that's the losing straw. And then who's going to clean the kitchen because that's the other one, and then the living room because that's the easiest one. And that's how they decided who was going to have to go back into Jerusalem. Because again, it's like a ghost town in there. You have to go in there. You're not going to be able to be at your farm all the time. You're going to be going, you're going to be commuting now back and forth between your farm and your home. You try, and there's going to be a lot of pressure on you because the temple, there's a lot of work that has to go on to keep the stuff going on in the temple every day. You got to, as Jonathan was saying, you'd have to bring in firewood. You have to bring in the livestock in order for them to do the sacrifice every day. And there is a lot of work to be in the city of Jerusalem now, but they decide they're going to do it by casting lots. So one out of ten people are going to come to live in Jerusalem. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Now we don't know whether that means whether the people who drew their lot, they were willing to go, or whether there are another group of people that were willing to go to Jerusalem. But it's interesting, isn't it? That why would you want to leave the house that you're in, the farm that you're tending, and to go to this ghost town that's a, a shell of its former self to try to get things going again? But God had put it in their heart to be willing to do that. If you have your Bible, you can also turn to Nehemiah 12. The rest of this book, the rest of chapter 11, is a bunch of names where they're describing the people. It's sort of like a census, the people that came to Jerusalem. And well, we can guesstimate if the numbers in here are correct, and there's some question about that, that maybe somewhere around 3,000 people came to live in Jerusalem at the time which would have been a, just a shell of its former self. So these people come in and move into the city of Jerusalem. And then Nehemiah says, all right, here's what we're going to do. All right? So we've come in. We've built the wall. 52 days. Amazing work. Particularly for Nehemiah, who I'm thinking is probably like me. I mean, he lived in the palace of the king. So I'm not thinking like he was real like handyman. And we know he had never run any sort of building project on this scale. And so all of a sudden, Nehemiah comes in and he oversees this building project. And they get it done in 52 days. And earlier when we described it, like who did the work, it was the people that were living in the area. So some of them were like real handy. And some of them, it says, were perfumers. 
Those are like the hipsters with the scars. You know who I'm talking about? Those are the guys that are hanging around. They're like painting and listening to cool music that you and I have never heard of before because, you know, that's what the hipsters do. Once you've heard of a band, you don't listen to it anymore because it's too popular. Like that, they're the ones, they're the artistic ones, and they were in there working with their hands building the wall. It's an amazing thing what happened in 52 days. And Nehemiah, and then they, they get the wall built, and then they, they rediscover God's word, and they commit themselves to it. The temple is built in their midst, and now he's going to throw a party. Because we, we did it. And he throws a rager. I mean, this time, it may not, you, you might read it, and it may not seem like that to you, but it was a raging party. I mean, it was huge. He spared no expense, and all the people were involved. And this is like, they're sort of like, uh, they're their equivalent of it. So they, they got everybody together, and they divided everybody into two groups, and they made like two massive choirs together. This is, this is a party in, Hebrew, in ancient Hebrew time. And they took them, they said, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start here at the wall, and have Half of, this, half of this group, you're going to be a big giant choir and you're going to go around the wall and you're going to look at everything that God did, how we built this wall, and you're going to sing all the way around. So you got like jamming and people in the front just like just like jamming out and getting out. And then you have people like me that are trying not to sing too loud, but you know I've got to sing to, to like sing with everybody else. If I sing too loud, it's so bad it's going to draw everybody else out. And then there's people on the other side doing the same thing, man. They're just rocking out like John's just like boom. He's like all getting into it, going to the other side and they start singing and celebrating what God had done. Because God had took them who had been scattered out all over the world and he brought them back to his city where he dwelt in their midst. Don't miss that. We're going to come back to that. The temple was there in their midst and it's where the presence of God and these two giant choirs, they go around the wall on either side. And they're just singing. And they're going out there celebrating what God has done. And they meet back around in the middle on the other side. When they've gone halfway around, and they meet at the temple. And they all gather in the temple. And they're singing. And they're celebrating for all that God had done. The city was still a remnant of its former self. The walls, we know, were probably smaller than they had been before. They didn't encompass as large an area as they had before. The temple, it says when they, when they laid the foundation of the temple, that the people that time cheered, but in, mixed in the cheers were wailings and cries because the people who remembered what the temple had looked like saw how much smaller it was than it used to be. It had cost them great sacrifice. Nehemiah left his posh job. He comes to Jerusalem. And not only does he have to do this, has he left his posh palace existence. And he's now living in Hobunkville in Jerusalem. But he's come here and then he gets, right off the bat, he gets threats from inside and outside the city. His people that start to spread rumors and slander him. That they start a whisper campaign against him. And not only that, but then they try to kill the man. And the people have sacrificed as well because as Jonathan said, it's such a small group of people that for them to do what it takes to get the city going and keep the city going and keep the temple sacrifices going requires far more effort than it would have required beforehand. And people are commuting from their small little farms just trying to eke out existence to Jerusalem and try to get the city going. It's requiring great amount of sacrifice. And yet, the people gather and celebrate 
And look at that verse. Nehemiah 12, verse 43. When they got to the temple and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for God had made them with made them rejoice with great joy the women and children also rejoiced let us know everybody and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away that's a rager like that's like having to call the cops kind of rager. Like I, like I, I live, I, I live in, in Carolina Forest on the other side, and the, the high school is not too far from us. It's like a, you know, over the woods. And on Friday nights when there's a football game, we can hear the band playing. And if you sit out there, you can hear when things go well because you hear the crowd cheer. It, 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 you can also, the, uh, there's a, a kind of a coastal housing. It's called University Village. It's where some uh, college students live. They're also kind of like through the woods over this way. And there's about three times a year that you can hear. They're, they're pretty good neighbors, but there's about three times a year that we hear them. At, at the beginning of school, when everybody's getting in and they're partying, we hear them at the end of each semester, the end of winter semester, the end of spring semester. When the finals are done, you hear they throw a raging party back there every single time. It's thumping. You hear them like all like partying and stuff going on. You heard them that people were so excited they were so they were they were so filled with joy you could hear the joy from far away but the question is why would they be so joyful what would cause them to have so much joy i mean it, the commentators that i read about this section say that this this passage this verse itself there's no, there, there's no passage that matches it in the Old Testament regarding rejoicing and joy. There's no place where it says that describes such exuberant joy of a great group of people that's unbridled. There's nobody wailing at this time. They are all celebrating greatly. So you could hear them all across the countryside. Why would they rejoice when everything they had done had been so costly? And the cost wasn't over. It wasn't like they had crossed the finish line and it was going to be easy now. They were living in a remnant of a city. And there's going to be a lot of hard work ahead. Things weren't easy. Why would they rejoice that way? What makes you rejoice? What makes you joyful? Most of this is when... There's some sort of outward circumstances that warrant me to be joyful. But t- today, my, I got in my car, and on my way to work, I didn't hit a single red light. And then when I pulled up the Starbucks, there was nobody waiting in front of me. And they forgot to charge me, and they gave me my coffee for free. My day, I drive in the, in the parking lot at work in the my favorite spot right there in the middle of the summer it's covered with shade all day long I get the one spot that's covered with shade all day long it's just easy street I'm joyful today or I lost some weight or I'm relieved I got a good report from the doctor or she gave me her number Whatever it is, there's something exterior that causes us to be joyful. And what causes us to not be? You know those days when you're like 
you're like walking around, there's that little like thundercloud over your head, it's kind of raining on you and everybody else is in sun and you're feeling like Eeyore walking around and life is terrible. What it causes you to be mourning and sorrowful those days. What we see here in this passage is that the ability ability to rejoice in the midst of sacrifice and pain, it must have a secret source and a superior object. In order to rejoice in the midst of sacrifice and pain, you must have a secret source and a superior object. Because most of us, as we were saying, our, our happiness, our joy, rides up and down like a roller coaster based upon our circumstances or based upon my interior ability to, to muster something up. But we see here that the nature of these people, joy that, of their joy, that everyone rejoiced. And it says that their rejoicing was great. It was loud. In the midst of great sacrifice, there was great amount of rejoicing, great depth of rejoicing. But what is the secret source? They had a source that wasn't tied to the stock market. If your success, if your joy, it's tied to how well your portfolio is doing, then how well are you doing when the stock market is kicking it? How are you doing? You're doing great, right? But when, whenever you get your statement or you're watching every day and it's plummeting and you see that you have less money, you're worth less today than you were a month ago, if, you're, if, you're, if your joy is tied to it, you're going to be sorrowful. If your joy is tied to how good your kids are, then you have a very mercurial standard of joy. One day, like, they're all, like, walking around, and they're smiling, and they're like, hello, brother, hello, sister, how art thou? Let us, let us celebrate what mom made for us tonight, for it is a bountiful, bountiful feast, and we are so thankful for that. And you're, like, above the clouds. But those days when they're, like, picking their boogers and they're wiping it on the, on the table and they're running around and they break the lamp and they're fussing each other all day long or you take them to Target and they decide that moment they're going to have a nervous breakdown and you're afraid like everybody around you thinks like you're evil mom or evil dad and they're going to turn you in to DSS because of your response to them. On those days, you're going to be plummeted way down on the bottom. If your, if your joy is based upon how many heads that you turn when you walk by, then those days when you have good hair days and you've been pumping the iron and you can ever be able to flex it a little bit and as a friend of mine says, unbutton the top button, show up a little taco meat up there and show off to people and they, they turn their head, you're going to be doing great. But on days where you're having the bad hair day, or you stepped on the scale before you went out and you saw that, boy, you, you really had a lot of fun this weekend, you put on a few pounds, you put on those jeans that used to fit and you had to suck in real tight and you're walking around and hoping nobody knows that you're sucking in the whole time, that your stomach hurts because it's so tight, you're going to be down here. 
But what we see here is a secret source of joy that's not based on exterior circumstances. Neither is it based upon interior determination. Some of you are are forcibly happy people. Because you're able to like see when the glass is half full. Now those of us that are glass half empty, we don't understand you. But you're like glass half full. You're finding the silver lining around every cloud. In every single circumstance, thing, thing, something happens bad at work and you're like, oh, oh, this feels bad. And you're like, oh, oh, but uh, uh, my pencil is sharp. Yes. And so you find something that you can like, oh, yes. Yeah, so some, something that you can base some, some sort of joy on. But sometimes that fails you, right? There's some mornings where you just, you're out of stuff. Or you don't have the interior energy to muster up anymore. And in those days, you're going to be low. But God is promising and showing for us here a source of joy that is neither based on exterior circumstances or interior determination. Because both of those are fleeting and faulty. Look at how we know that. Because we see in this passage it says, They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced for what? God had what? Made them rejoice with great joy. There's a, this story. Um, how many of you have ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Anybody? Ever like for real? Like Not like, okay, I say I read it. But like for real, actually read it. There's this illustration that stood out to me ever since the first time I read it. Um, by the way, I think it's something that every, every Christian should read. But there's this illustration where um, a Christian goes into this house, and we won't get into where they're going, but he goes into this house, and he walks into this room, and there's a fire in, the, in a fireplace. And the fire is like representative of like a believer's life. And outside the fire is the, 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 evil, the evil one, the enemy. And he's constantly pouring water on the fire all the time. And Christian is like the guy who's still around the house. Christian says, what? somebody needs to stop him. He's going to put out the fire. He's pouring water on the fire. Somebody has to stop him. And the guy just doesn't seem bothered about it at all. And, he, and Christian is freaking out like somebody needs to stop him right now. He's going to put out the fire. And the guy says, hey, come with me. He takes him around through this door, around the other side of the wall. And on the back side of the fireplace, he sees the Holy Spirit is constantly feeding the fire with oil. So even though exterior circumstances look like it's going to dampen the fire and put it out, there's a secret source of joy, of hope, of peace that transcends understanding. There's a, a passage in Habakkuk. It's one of my favorites. Yes, Habakkuk. That is a book in the Bible, by the way. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, you can just listen. Trust me that it actually is a book. I didn't make that up. Habakkuk 3, verse 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. So again, this is an agrarian society. So if the fig tree is not blossoming, there's no fruit on the vines. The produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. That means it's a really, really, really bad year. Though you lose your job and your car won't start, it blows up when you turn the crank. Though your children are 
making you pull your head out, though you, your hair out or your head out, though, you, though your husband and you have both lost your jobs and you cannot make the mortgage payment. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That means that uh, though uh, the, the sides of the mountains in Israel were craggy, excuse me, and rocky, he gives you the feet like a deer to be able to jump up. Though everything goes wrong, God provides a secret source of joy. Not only do they have a secret source, but they had a superior object of their joy. Because here's where the real, the real deal comes in. You know what the source of their joy was and the superior object of their joy was? Is that the thing that set the Israelites apart from every other people wasn't that God had given them laws it wasn't that Moses had led them out of Egypt. What set the people apart was that God dwelt in their midst. When God led them out of Egypt, there was a tabernacle in their midst, and his presence dwelt in the tabernacle. And when they moved to Israel and finally they built the temple, his presence, his glory, as John taught beforehand, his, the, when God goes visible with his beauty, his Glory came to dwell in the temple itself. So the people gathered around the living presence of God in their midst. And you know what? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, do you know what sets you apart from every other person? It's not necessarily what you believe, though it does. It's not the fact that we sing cool songs or we have a book what sets us apart from every, everybody else is that God's presence, if you are a child of God this morning, God's presence dwells in you and among us. The one who you were created for. Why are we always looking for something to put our joy in? We're always investing in some source of joy. It may be our kids or our career. It may be our fashion sense. It might be our beauty. It might be the car that we drive. It might be what people think of me, like they think I'm the cool guy, or it might be what, what, whatever it may be. We always put, we find some, something that's going to be a source of our joy, and we're constantly investing in that. And when that goes up and down, my joy goes up and down. My peace goes up and down. My, my sense of security goes up and down. But whenever I invest in the one who I was created for. St. Augustine, I've said it before, St. Augustine said, our hearts were made for you and they are restless till they find rest in you. And until you find that he's the treasure, 
He's the source of joy. To know him. To be called his friend. To be called his son or his daughter. To experience communion with the God who created the heavens and the earth. And spun the universe into existence. Is to find the reason that you were created. And because of that, because he never changes and he is mighty and above all, then your joy can be steadfast and secure. And no matter what exterior circumstances happen or how I'm feeling inside today, my joy can be solid in the bedrock of who he is and what he has done for me. And that never changes. Some people think that... uh, Some scholars think that they were actually singing this particular psalm. I'm going to read to you now. And we'll be done. Psalm 147. We don't know for certain if this is the song that they sang, but we think there's a good chance. If not, they certainly sang something like that when they were going around that wall that had been broken. Think about that. As a group, they're going around the wall and they're looking at every stone. Every section of the wall, certain ones of them had worked on, and they were remembering. They're remembering when they started, how they didn't think they'd ever finish. They're remembering the long, grueling days. They're remembering how heavy each rock was they put into place. They remember jokes that they had with the people that were working beside them. Inside jokes that you can only get from when you're, when you're working beside that. When you try to tell the people, it sounds really corny and cheesy. They walked around, they're remembering the stories as they got around what God had done. How God had gathered them from all over the world and brought them back to the city. And even though it had been a lot of work and was requiring sacrifice, even though the temple wasn't as big as it was, even though the city was a remnant of what it once was, they saw his work. And they sang something like this. Praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant And a song of praise is fitting. Notice it doesn't say it's a requirement. He says it's pleasant. Because whenever you really, really lock into the fact that you were created for him and you get to know him, you spend time with him, you, you realize what he has done for you in Jesus Christ, you experience his powerful presence in your life and in the midst of his community. When that happens, it is no longer a chore. It's no longer work. It's no longer something to check off. It is pleasant. Listen to what they said. Listen to the beginning of each section. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. You get the sort of theme of the song so far? Who's it about? Is it about you or me and our commitment to him? What is it about? It's about him. His nature and his character, what he has done, that never changes. Great is the Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord, the Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. That's like a guitar. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow in the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. That's a weird translation, isn't it? He's saying it doesn't 
doesn't delight in the power of the horse, nor in how strong you are. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. Though the walls are smaller, the city is a remnant, though it's cost you great sacrifice and will cost you great sacrifice in the future. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold. He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob as the children of Israel, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules, or the translation there could be his just decrees. Praise the Lord. Because he was the source of their joy, he was also the object of your joy. And when when he is the source of your joy, and he's the object of your joy, that never changes. And though the fig tree doesn't blossom, though you get that call that you've been dreading, your mom's sick, your dad's sick, you're sick, Though the pink slip comes, though you can't make your payment, though nobody likes you, though you think you're ugly, though your children are crazy, though your life doesn't look like you hoped it would look at this time, yet he is still awesome. And he, if you are a child of God this morning, he has chosen you as his dearly beloved daughter or son. He has rested his favor and his love upon you. And he has filled your your heart with his presence. And he has brought you into a community of believers. And so his presence is in you and among us. And that never changes. That will not lower tomorrow. It will not be any greater tomorrow. It is a burning, passionate, shocking, gracious love that he has put upon you. The believer has a secret source of joy. And we have a superior object of our joy. It's all based on the one who in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2 it says that who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame why to bring you and I into his family we have a secret source of joy and a superior object of our joy and that never has to change thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church we are so glad that you took the time to join us today At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. 
For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.